You're listening to Research Inside Out, an inside look at research outside the classroom. This podcast is recorded at Lakehead University's Aurelia campus. I'm your host, Stephanie Edwards. Today I'm talking with Dr. Florin Pendea from the Departments of Sustainability Sciences and Geography of the Environment. Florin's interested in climate change in Arctic and Northern areas. He's a paleogeographer, a geoscientist, a historical ecologist, and many, many other things. His research focuses on human dimensions of climate change, as well as the environmental change in Northern prehistory. Keep listening to find out about Florence's discoveries in both Canada and the Russian Arctic, and why he says being a climate change skeptic is actually a good thing. Hello, and welcome to today's episode. I'm here today with Florin Pendea from the Departments of Sustainability Sciences and Geography of the Environment. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Stephanie. You're welcome. Now, before we start, um, could you just maybe go over your research in broad terms, just so our audience knows what sure. it is you do? So I'm a bit of a, of a jack-of-all-trade in terms of geosciences. Where I come from a double background. One is um, sort of more geology-based, and the other is more of a historical ecology-based. So I guess I'm where my research and my interests are, the human dimensions of climate change and environmental change in general, and Earth's surface processes and uh, landforms. So I'm interested basically in the landscape from its dynamic or long-term dynamic perspective. Many, you know, landscape ecologists, for instance, they, they look at, you know, short-term changes to the landscape and, you know, the systemic changes that happen there and all the drivers and the movers and the shakers of that. I am a long-term. I usually work at centennial to millennial scale, and I go far back in time by way of reconstructing these changes with the help of usually teeny tiny creatures that we usually refer to them in like in a general sense as microfossils. I am specializing within this, you know, human dimensions of climate change. I'm specializing into, I think, if I were to say what I do would be to, to look for models of sustainability in prehistory. My work looks on environmental change in Nordic prehistory. I have a circumboreal interest with my main regional foci to northern Canada and the Russian Arctic, to some extent also northern Europe, mostly Finland. So that's where I work and that's where I draw my models, which are usually from you know a hunter-gatherer perspective with a prehistoric time frame ranging from 10,000 years to possibly you know less than 1,000 years. So. So you mentioned that you work in climates that are a bit on the, the colder side instead of sort of going more, I know you've mentioned this to us before, yeah. that most people go like to the tropics, but you decided to go the opposite direction. What kind of inspired you to go that way yeah. and to work there instead? I think, I think the North has this outrageous beauty. And I think it comes from the fact that there is nothing lavish in the north because all resources are so limited and the the bounty time is so short that adaptations to all life focus around maximizing the intake of resources in the you know the shortest amount of time and that kind of creates this uh, enormously beautiful space uh, that's on the romantic side of things i guess but um mostly because the north the north and you know the south but i don't work in the southern uh, hemisphere so circumboreal area is the most dynamic from an environmental 
change point of view and and i i think you know you've heard you know a lot of people talk, even on tv and in the media saying that the arctic is is the most affected um, region of the world from the climate change discourse and and it is true the reason it is so affected is because the arctic is an, is really not a lot of land it's, it's an ocean right and it, it's highly dynamic in terms of ocean currents and air masses that are you know coming in and out and in that sense the arctic is the most unstable part of climatic regions of the world but also because the arctic and the north in general depends heavily on the balance of energy that comes from the sun and its interaction with the surface for instance i'm just giving you an example of why the arctic can blow up in a minute well in a geological yeah. <laughs> not necessarily in human terms but uh, the arctic ocean is covered by ice and, and many people do know that and and ice color is white which uh, often means that it keeps little energy because most of it is reflected back to space so the solar radiation is is not kept there because of this reflective surface highly reflective but say there is a warm year and the arctic ice come august and september breaks up and uh, virtually disappears and in some years we've had historical lows of, of ice cover and and the arctic what does that mean it means that the formerly white surface is now replaced with a dark blue surface which is highly absorbent in terms of heat so climate change in the way of heating would cause the arctic to lose ice and the arctic with little ice or no ice it's actually getting even hotter by the fact that the formerly white surface is now replaced with a blue surface. And then we call polar amplification. It amplifies the effect, which is a positive feedback to climate. And, and that, it, it, it turns into a domino effect throughout. And warm Arctic obviously means a lot of precipitation in the sense that there's more humidity in the atmosphere. But it also means that life forms that were formerly not suitable. They didn't find suitable conditions up north. They are now advancing north. And, and that changes the ecosystem, the Arctic ecosystem, and the, the North Boreal ecosystem, for that matter, too. So invasive species. In, in the Canadian Arctic, we have a, a major problem that marine species that were kind of isolated and, and kept at bay of this, you know, almost year-round uh, ice cover on the, on the Arctic Ocean are now advancing north. And that, that has a, a terrible impact into a very, very precise and limited food chain. You have the polar bear, the only predator, top predator in, the, in this ecosystem, and then you have the teeny tiny crustaceans that we call krill and and all these food webs are, are severely altered to the point that this entire ecosystem can crash so there's a lot to worry about the north and although i don't work in oceanography per se my my doctoral work was was in in coastal systems so i'm interested in because in the arctic most of the bounty is in the coastal area this is where you have lush tidal marshes and for instance the geese that migrate north uh, in James Bay and Hudson Bay area they, they do seek these coastal systems as the same with people. The interior is not there's not a lot of food in the interior for the occasional moose and, and 
you know, brook trout and other, you know, uh, inland food sources as, as the ones that I mentioned, and of course caribou, but um, most of the hunting and the harvesting, for instance, the Cree First Nations or the Dene Nations up north are are concentrated on these lake shores and, and in the case of the Hudson Bay around the marine uh, shorelines that are um, highly dynamic from many points of view. So, so I'm interested in that. And I also, you know, I think we can't really catch a lot of things as we look with human and human time frames. Change is, is sometimes visible, but that's a rare occurrence. Change is usually a long-term process. And, and I think people are hasty when they, they, they're drawing conclusions based on perhaps a decade of observations or even two or three decades. Simply, ecosystems don't react as fast to a stimuli, for mm -hmm. instance. You know, you, it's almost like you slap yourself and it hurts tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And this is how, it's, it's the natural inertia, right? It's the, the reaction time of these ecosystems that is, is not immediate at all. For me to learn or to understand a process that I see happening today, I need to go back in space. So... So in that sense, I'm what you would call a paleoecologist. So I look at ecology from the initial stages, uh, which always in the Northern Hemisphere, and in particular in Canada, is the post-glacial period, you know, before the post-glacial, before 10,000 years ago. You know, everything north of New York was covered by a thick ice sheet, and ecosystems were reorganized and, and, and migrated north after this period as the ice sheet waned down, lake ecosystems sprung up and then coastal ecosystems sprung up and of course the big boreal ecosystem that associates a, a boreal forest and an enormously important peat basin centered on Hudson Bay and around Hudson Bay in fact, which is one of the world's largest carbon pools. And I, I want to get to this part because most of my recent work, my, my students and I work on this issue of the relationship between carbon sequestration by these peatlands up north and processes of disturbance, landscape disturbance, such as fire, for instance, or human disturbance. You know, like there's um, quite a fashionable uh, love-to-hate relationship now between the oil sands and Canadians, mm -hmm. you know, over a worldwide social spectrum. And indeed, you know, this, this resource is causing quite, a, quite an uh, enormous amount of disturbance by means, for instance, you know, some of that soil and you know, the materials that are left at the end of the process of oil extraction from sand, you know, are dumped on landscapes. And these sometimes happen to be peatlands. What happens once you bury a peatland under some sort of mineral layer? This is one of the questions that I've asked myself, and I don't know the answer to this because, again, these ecosystems take time to react. Mm -hmm. But I found an interesting analog for this. Instead of waiting for these situations or peatlands to react to see what happens to them, I go to a very interesting place called Kamchatka Peninsula, which is in the Russian Far East. It's a subarctic region, and it's part of the Pacific Ring of Fire. It's one of the most highly active regions in the world, volcanic regions in the world. 
what happens here is that you have this high dense, uh, high resolution, <laughs> I guess, volcanic activity that mostly results, you know, of course, it's the building of uh, volcanoes and the cones and the volcanic apparatus, but it's the wider impact, for instance, volcanic ash is laid down over thousands and thousands of miles around the volcano. And this is a process of, what, a burial, mm -hmm. right? It's a burial of the soil. So my students and I are looking at these analogs, old analogs, or paleoanalogs, to see what happens if, for instance, you have a peatland buried by volcanic ash. Is it losing carbon? Is it conserving that carbon? Because this carbon has the capacity for a positive feedback to the atmosphere that rivals our society's greenhouse emissions, greenhouse gas emissions. So this is no little thing. We think of ourselves as, you know, our society indeed uh, causes a lot of damage, but there are natural processes that are far more dangerous. Mm -hmm. and, and anything that could happen to these northern peatlands, which are based, the biggest one is in Siberia, and the second largest one is in, in, in northern Canada and Alaska. If these, for instance, start, they've been storing carbon for, for thousands of years, but now if we mess with them in some way, or the climate changes, they could break that balance, and instead of being sinks of carbon, they could be sources of carbon to the atmosphere, which... It's it's not even funny to yeah, talk about the, the, the potential impacts <laughs> of this process. And I do not like to sound alarmist and, and it's just not my it's not my job and, and, and definitely not something that I'd like to do. But but we need to know what happens. And I think the little teeny tiny contributions that we can do by learning some of these processes, you know, what happens to a marsh if it's buried by something, a mineral soil. In this case, you know, I work with volcanic ash, but it might as well be sand layer left out from the process of oil extraction, right? Mm -hmm. So there might be some, some minor differences between the two, the two types of burial, but the basics are the same. So since I can't wait 150 years or 200 years to see what happens to mm -hmm. Fort McMurray area, for instance, I'd like to go to Kamchatka and learn what has happened to these marshes because they've been buried numerous like for instance the area the area that i work in has been completely covered by thick volcanic ashes uh, at least two dozen times in the last 15,000 years and by a very very high detail high resolution analysis of this these peaks that've been buried several times repeatedly buried by by ash learning what happens with their budget, with the carbon budget, and what happens with their community by, you know, reconstructing the ecology of that marsh and its carbon budget is what I do. And, and the last the last study we have, my student, uh, Kristen McLeod, for instance, she's working on changes to the relationship between changes to hydrology of a peatland and the carbon storage potential of this over 15,000 years. So, I think it's a it's a very you know when you when you tell the story of what you do is sometimes perhaps a bit more sounds a bit more abstract but but at the end of the day what we want to find out is what happens if we disturb soils what happens if we disturb ecosystems what are the net effects of this in terms of potential of climate change and it needs we need to be a lot of people like us, mm -hmm. you know, and my, my work will not change the world, yeah. <laughs> but, 
But together with thousands of other geoscientists, I think we're gathering a wealth of information that will help then climate modelers better predict what could happen to this only home we have, mm -hmm. right? I was going to ask, a lot of people probably don't understand why the need to look so far back. They would think that, what can you learn back then that will help us now? So could you let us in a bit on sure. like, I mean, what I mean, the past I mean, can tell us about our you future? Know, this, 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 uh, <laughs> and this is, uh, this is a common problem to anthropology and mm. physical anthropology specifically. Uh, archaeologists are, are, you know, in the same in the same boat with us, paleo people. There's been a lot of work over the last century, much of it in terms of history, and 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 and, and I think mostly, you know, the, the scientific community moved to more, you know, present day issues. You know, we, we we used to be more interested in the old days. Egyptology, for instance, was a science of. You know the ancient Egypt because you know it's, there was a lot of beauty there mm -hmm. and art and and as such. And I think the common denominator of all these people that look in the past is that indeed the past informs the future. There is almost nothing that hasn't been done before. For instance, let's just take for instance extinctions. We've had five major mass extinctions on Earth. They have a lot of things in common. Mm -hmm. It keeps happening all the time, right? Species are gone. In fact, 99% of the species that ever lived are gone. So I think there's a lot of information down there in that deep time that could help us a little bit. Because the problem with people that our universe is, is, is small in the sense that it, it only evolves and, and, and revolves around human lifetimes, which is, say, a century at max, right? In terms of natural systems, they, they, they often, most of them, do not operate on this time scale. They simply don't. So unless we catch the whole story, which chances are it's a thousand years or maybe two thousand years old story, mm -hmm. There's no point of even looking at it because you're not going to understand anything. Paleo perspective is not just a nostalgia for the old days and the old earth. It's a necessity. It's a scientific necessity, really. That starts from the fact that we need to stop being self-centered, we people, right? We, we need to stop thinking that the world functions in human timescales because it doesn't. It just doesn't. Say, for instance, this... Canadian landscape that, that we love very much here in, in, in central Ontario. We have some of the most beautiful landscapes in North America. It's, it's a relatively young landscape. Mm -hmm. And by, by, all, by all standards, this is probably some of the youngest on Earth, with the exception of some volcanic lands. But, but in terms of wide, wide areas of land, tracts of land, this is probably some of the youngest on Earth. And what does it young mean here? It means 10,000 years old. 10,000 years. Now, how many generations that is? Even a landscape that's considered so young is, in fact, so old in terms of people were starting, starting some type of agriculture in the Fertile Crescent and you know, southern Turkey and Syria and the, and the Mesopotamia, right, and the present-day Iraq. So that's that's old <laughs> by all standards, right? Like by, by human standards. It is so young, though. I mean, you know, there are some species, for instance, I'll give you an example of one of my favorite trees is the Canadian tamarack, uh, Larix laricina, for instance. Larix laricina still migrates up north. It hasn't found its 
ecological stability yet. It's still in a post-glacial movement up north. Mm -hmm. So you would, this gives you the, a, a perfect example of how these ecosystems and, and landscapes are so young because they, had, they haven't stabilized yet after this major ice age that we had and ended uh, quite abruptly about 18 to 15,000 years ago. So that's why I go back in time and, and it's a fascinating you would think that I'm an historian I'm not I'm, I consider myself most more of a of a detective mm -hmm. I like to you know little teeny tiny things that inform informs me about these fascinating processes that that shape the world we live in today what do you find most difficult about working in the past like what are some issues or problems you've come across that you've had to deal with in your research well it's a very expensive research I remember when I was doing my doctoral, my second doctoral dissertation at McGill, you know, there were, there were t tens of thousands of dollars involved in, in just a simple trip up north. It, it, it's the logistics of it is also quite quite difficult because they are luckily quite inaccessible areas of, of, of Canada and in general of the, of the Northern Hemisphere. So challenges related to access to, um, to being able to do your work and you're you at the mercy of the weather. You know, one day snows and the other day is 20 degrees out and then, and then you got to be prepared for that. And I think it's part of its charm and, and mm -hmm. it's part of why I love it because it, it's hard it's not a good place to be a grad student, for instance, because you never know if your thesis is going to work out or not. You know, it all depends on a one or two field season that are extremely short. If you don't get your things done, then your thesis is in jeopardy. So it's, it's living on the edge a little bit. <laughs> now I'm, I'm much calmer, but even, though, even now, you know, like last year, for instance, I've, I've been to uh, central Kamchatka in the Russian Far East and things happen you know i had a, a crippling accident really and i fell for uh, from an outcrop so it took a year out of my life and and then it's, again it's 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 part of part of what we do mm -hmm. and i think we're aware of the risks and no matter how careful you are it's always always around the corner so that's the challenge what is your process like when you go out to do field work and what kind of time is put into it? Because I think a lot of people probably think you go out for a month and you get everything you need and you come back, but really it's a much longer process of collecting oh. <laughs> and testing. And... You know, I just, I just, my colleagues from Buffalo, uh, from the State University of New York at Buffalo, we just published a, a, a very important paper, but just published, just been accepted to a renowned journal. And it's work that started in 2010. That's five years in the making, so mm -hmm. it takes a long time. It's doing the field work, it's just beginning, then processing all that sediment takes, takes again, an enormous amount of time and resources, of course. And then one of the most expensive parts of what I do is actually finding and, and creating the time frame based on various dating methods, such as radiocarbon, for instance, something that people are kind of aware of, but other methods too, such as thermoluminescence, for instance, and so on and so forth. Very expensive and lengthy processes all, and then once you've had your uh, days in the sun, and then, you know, you have to go in the lab and start working long hours at the microscope, and then you would be investing five years for a 30-page paper mm -hmm. with Period. five other people yeah. <laughs> with maybe 12 other people because yeah. you know it's a long it's a long uh, and arduous process and it's always um for me i have been fortunate enough to to work in in an almost perfect symbiosis with archaeologists because that i'm interested in in a paleo perspective on on the circumpolar north 
we've 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 helped each other understand a bunch of things but also we help each other in the field for instance i cook i cook for a whole team you know this mm -hmm. is something i do and they expect me to cook well and and then they expect me to dig a trench and then they expect me to take a core and <laughs> and then i expect them to give me uh, good materials to 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 shape my narrative into a human environmental dialogue right uh, or human environment sorry dialogue so I love my job so much. <laughs> do you have a favorite favorite part of your job? I do love both teaching and research, but I will tell you what. If I can't take some of these stories into the classroom, I think I fail. I feel that I'm a failure in a way because all that wealth of information is only as good as the process of keeping it alive. And, and the way to keep it alive is bringing it to the classroom, right? And I... I, I, I get goosebumps when I see a student like, wait a minute, that's interesting, right? Mm -hmm. Or, hmm, I would have done it differently. That, those are even more satisfactory reactions because then I, if I feel that I stirred something, then my work doesn't look like a geeky, aloof kind of yeah. removed from reality process. And, and I don't want to be a living fossil. <laughs> I'd rather be a, a, a living translator. Because it took me a long time to learn these things, and I am now in a in a position to translate some of these or, or make make it them simple to understand, simpler to understand. I'd have to say that being in a classroom is my favorite, but always is is it's it's a back and forth between my summer right in the in the Arctic and the, the happenings and the, the discoveries, the mm -hmm. little mishaps, and I think. For instance, in my climate change course, half of it is why we shouldn't trust the science of climate change. I'm all about the error bars, right? Why are they, why do we, like, what, what do these errors mean? Can we even trust the, te the technology we have, the methodology we have? So I try to, to tell my students that our data and our information and our wisdom is only as good as the data we produce. And if the data we produce is not good enough, then... Of course, there are going to be a lot of climate skeptics, right? Mm -hmm. So, but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that what we have now is not extremely important, and the, the efforts that are made uh, and the monies that are poured into this geoscientific research in the north, for instance, it's not worth it. Is 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 if something will help us and warn us before things happen, it's going to be the geoscience of northern the hemisphere. All right. So to wrap up the podcast, if you had to explain your research in just five words, what five words would you use? Well, one would have to be North and Nordicity. I love the concept of Nordicity. You know, perhaps that would define me and the things that I like about the world most. Second would be microscale, or rather the dialogue between microscale and macroscale. I, I look into teeny tiny microscopic organisms to inform me about these long-term big processes. And, and I like that, that shift from the small to the big. And I guess that's, that's three words, so I need a couple of them. I like how the past informs present and definitely can predict the future. So past would be my fourth keyword. The fifth I'd have to say, and, and perhaps it's a bit surprising, humility. I try to keep my head straight when I own this information or I produce this information. 
I need to treat it with respect and warn about its limits. And that has to be some sort of, or has to be characterized as some sort of scientific humility. Don't overplay things. They, they, they don't. It doesn't work. And it, it doesn't serve anybody. Mm -hmm. So I try to be very careful about what I say. Great. Well, thank you again for joining me today. Stephanie, it was wonderful talking to you. Thanks so much. Thanks you so too. Much. Thanks for listening to Research Inside Out. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss another podcast. You should also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Lakehead Aurelia to stay up to date with all things Lakehead and to continue getting an inside look into the day-to-day -day happenings of our campus.